I have never related these stories to a group such as this or in a public place like this. I trust that if I say anything I should not, I will be arrested immediately and taken away, so you'll know. I've decided to uh, begin, set the stage by reading a few excerpts from the book Skunk Works by Ben Rich and Leo Janis. It's August 1979 on this scorching Nevada desert where Marines armed with ground-to-air hawk missiles are trying to score a kill against my new airplane. This is Ben talking. An experimental prototype, codenamed Have Blue. We in the Skunk Works have built the world's first pure stealth fighter, which is designed to evade the Hawks and everyone else's powerful tracking radar. But I'm confident that our stealth technology will prove too elusive for even this Hawk missile's powerful tracking system, which is capable of detecting a Hawk riding on thermals from 30 miles away. On the Hawk's tracking system, our fighter's radar profile would show up as similar to a hummingbird's. Later, I'm watching Have Blue approach through my binoculars. I knew where they were coming from at 8,000 feet. The young sergeant standing with me stares in disbelief at the sightless missiles of his Hawk battery, then gapes at the diamond-shaped aircraft as it goes by directly above us. Quite a machine. I want to uh, transport your thinking now to the 70s, back in time. Ivan was alive and well. The Cold War was thriving with threats, both real and perceived from the USSR. Our country was then investing in technology. I had little idea what stealth was. The XST was a program competing a couple of companies to build a low radar return model and measure the, the RCS on a pole. And from that, have blue, have blue developed. I was selected to work on something that developed into a captivating, interesting, challenging, unique, Need I say more effort? These two stealth technology demonstrators were certainly high points of my flying career, which had many other excellent aircraft. I'm going to give you a little more background. I uh, wasn't aware I was going to get so much of my background talked about by the general. But uh, here's what I did to get ready to do what I found myself doing. In the early 1960s, I was a lieutenant in the F-100 wing at England Air Force Base, 401st TAC Fighter Wing, 612th TAC Fighter Squadron. Colonel Pete Everest, chronicled in the book The Fastest Man Alive, was one of our wing bosses. Our wing deployed to Homestead Air Force Base during the, the Cuban crisis. Our Super Sabres there were loaded for bear with napes, bombs, rockets, 20 mic mics, everything short of nukes. And we were ready to go to war. We had target photos, threat briefs from AAA, MiGs, SAMs. We were all ready with uh, even a list of radio frequencies from uh, 
low-frequency station so we could home in on those guys to help get to where we were going to go if we went. We had roadmaps passed out to us from Cuba, uh, correction, roadmaps of Cuba that uh, they were Texaco roadmaps. That was part of our supplies to go to war. <coughs> we were ready. I was Colonel Everest, number two man, in a planned strike against surface-to-air missile sites to go if a SAM shot down any of our recce aircraft. We called our flight SSS, Selective SAM Suppressors. And we stood cockpit alert whenever a U-2 overflew Cuba. On the day hour where U-2 was downed by a SAM, we immediately got the launch orders, did cartridge starts on our Super Sabres, and called for taxi. Wolf 8 cleared the taxi to runway 09er. Colonel Everest taxied in front of me, and I swung smartly in behind him, tucked in tight, just up wing, just up wind, to taxi right on out with the guy. And at the end of the parking row, he started a left turn to runway 27, the wrong one. And I quickly and ur urgently transmitted, the other 09er, and he did a fast 180, and we were on our way to the arming area, and after that, we'd be airborne. Unfortunately, I think, we did not launch our SSS flight. We were called back by the highest level, the president of the U.S. Here's my test pilot school class. It was then called the Aerospace Research Pilot School. And uh, these guys were just about to graduate. We were ready to go do great things, and we tried. And maybe some of us did. Two of the guys made general. One guy was the commandant of the test pilot school later. We had one SR pilot, a Blackbird, the SR-71, a president of the Society of Experimental Test Pilots. We went out and tried, and I think we did. But just about the time I got associated with stealth, I was working at the F-15, and what a sweetheart of an airplane that was and is. There are lots of stories there, but for some other time. In the spring of 76, I was working happily at the F-15, and I got a, a call one day from the wing commander, Colonel Joe Guthrie, and his sidekick, Colonel Larry McLean, and said uh, I should report to the general's office. So I did, with a bit of concern, because I did not know what was waiting for me. Gen General Tom Stafford put me at ease immediately and said, have a seat, Ken. I knew I was not in trouble. <coughs> We began talking. He said he was looking for someone to work on something extremely hush-hush and that I had been nominated for the work which would be done uh, solo, the only Air Force guy working on it, he said. And I later found out that there was a small SPO located here at Wright-Patt that, that uh, managed the program and supplied engineers as needed to help the contractor get through the stumbling blocks that we did run into. He said, you cannot hear anything about this until you agree to do the work. And that once you begin, you'll have to continue. You can have a few minutes to think about it. <laughs> I thought just a few seconds to comprehend what he had said and responded that I would be pleased to do that. General Stafford began to talk without reference to any documentation because of the extreme classification of the program. 
there was only one other Air Force general who knew about it and no Navy knowledge, he related at that time. It was Black with his small program office at Wright Pat. DARPA was involved. The Lockheed Skunk Works was building a small aircraft to demonstrate unbelievably small radar returns. The unclassified name was half blue, but I was not to say it or write it down. I thought, huh? A huge leap in technology. Just think what you could do with such a weapon system. Later during the days, the early days of the first Gulf War, I recall saying to some of my special friends that the stealth fighter could have been flying practice missions with impunity over Iraq. Don't know if they did. The general asked if I knew how to find the skunk works, and I said, nope, never have been there. And it was at that time located on the Burbank aircraft property, where it had been since way back, way back. And he told me to take the first Lockheed entrance into that property. And I was to tell the gate guard that I was expected by Norm Nelson. He was the Lockheed program manager for Half Blue. I was to sign in for unclassified business and claim that I was self-employed. I was not to show or acknowledge any military affiliation. And I, uh, I pulled it off. The next day I went down, found my way, and survived the stern guard scrutiny. He told me how to find Building 52, an old dirty white ramshackle building, which was one of the Skunk Works original workplaces. I rang the bell at a locked door and right away was met by Norm Nelson. Nothing slow there and is escorted into his inner sanctums. My lasting impression of that initial visit is one of an old, mostly open bay room with no windows to look outside or for people to look inside, filled with some well-experienced engineers sitting working at their tables, working away. This was offset by a tall, articulate, blonde, attractive, California-looking lady who was Norm's administrator and secretary. She was uh, the best. So I was briefed in on Have Blue and was completely dazzled about everything I was having the opportunity to learn. I was briefed at a level which allowed me access to RCS data and the goal RCS for Have Blue was indeed beyond belief. I committed myself to learning everything I could about that aircraft all its systems, electric, fuel, landing gear, the flight control system, certainly. The, the aircraft was quite unstable about both the pitch and yaw axes. It, it used a fly-by-wire, no mechanical backup, I call it, not very redundant system, but it, it, it did have adequate redundancy. The F-16 flight control system computers were used with, of course, the have blue uh, control laws and and gains and such. We also used the F-16 fixed stick for flying the airplane, a side stick control, except it didn't move, just you pulled on it and pushed on it. The uh, Blue aircraft was going to have two T-38 non-afterburning engines, a big step down and thrust to weight, nothing like what I had grown accustomed to in the Eagle. Lockheed was constructing a full-sized wooden mock-up without skin to facilitate their fast-moving design and build program so the engineers could come there and actually measure and route 
pipes, vents, wires, to build the airplane. And it helped me visualize the aircraft right away. And here we've got airplane one sitting in the hangar. And you can't tell the size of this beauty from that, but it's a small airplane. It, I, I've said before it's small enough to taxi underneath a 117. It's not quite that small, but it, it's a small fellow. I was working alone, and I decided pretty soon that I really did want to have some help to work on this thing. I was a, a one-man team, and uh, I, was, I, I talked to General Stafford about this, and he immediately uh, authorized an engineer to come join me. It was Roger Crane, and he was later replaced uh, by a fellow named Ed Bradfield, and it was, it was good for my sanity and also good for the program to have somebody uh, besides this one guy there representing the Air Force Flight Test Center. Of course, Lockheed was there with their test team, their engineers, the SPO engineers were there, and uh, we worked it. So Roger came down and got immediately dazzled by the aircraft and what we were trying to do with it. And uh, not long after he got there, he was asked to address a meeting. We did have meetings in those days to uh, recommend whether or not we should build two aircraft as opposed to one. If we're just going to build, have a small demonstration program, we're going to fly the airplane, make sure it works okay, it's safe to fly, and then do stealth testing. So why build two? And, and Roger's lecture said, yes, we should build a second aircraft in case we lose the first one. And Keith Beswick, the Lockheed uh, flight test manager, asked us to do that. I asked Roger to do that, to, to make that presentation. And I later realized that he was actually, uh, had been approached by the SPO on that subject, and he wanted the flight test center to sell the SPO, to spill the money, to build the second airplane. And so we did decide to, to build a second aircraft, not completely, just short of finishing it, to have in case we lost the first one. Security, you'll see that word down on the slide. And, and I write it every once in a while as I built these slides, transported my thinking back in time to those days, and security was huge because uh, the guys were there. The intelligence gathering effort by the Russians was was uh, probably as big as ours was against those guys. And, and we were able to keep Hav Blue a secret from our own people, <laughs> as well as the Russians. We succeeded. Oh my, yes. I, uh, from my personal point of view, the first line is, is talking about how I uh, slowly stopped showing up for work at Edwards, and eventually I never did show up for work at Edwards. And I'd go somewhere and I'd come back when I came back. And no one knew where I went, except for General Stafford. Piloted simulations. My, did we spend, Bill Park, the Lockheed pilot, and I, hours and hours in the ground simulator, uh, developing the flight control system, familiarizing ourselves, the pilots, with the control system and how that baby would work. And uh, somehow we always seemed to do that at night. I found myself driving the... Uh, LA freeways at midnight and one and two o'clock so often from that effort. One uh, memory that, that jumped right up was I had a friend, some friends at the F-16. I went to one particular friend and borrowed an F-16, an actual flight hardware F-16 control stick, which we took to the Lockheed simulators and incorporated that into the simulator as a piece of a hardware in the loop simulation. And for the pilots, it was good. We got to, to sample 
the feel of that thing. And uh, we, we didn't like it that much, but that's what we were going to get. And, and uh, it worked out just fine. I thought of and was able to sell the general getting a flight for Bill Park and myself as preparation for flying half blue. And the CalSpan Variable Stability T-Bird, which you have here in your museum. I looked at it the other day. The, the pilot for that flight was Bob Harper. His name's on the canopy of your machine there. Uh, I think Bob was, he has been a friend for many, many years. And he was surprised uh, when I walked out to the T-Bird to late one afternoon. It was still daylight, but the, uh, the dusk was coming. And I walked out with a kind of short, little pudgy, older looking fellow on a flight suit to go flying in his T-Bird. And uh, Bob took him riding <coughs> and then took me riding and Bill Park and I joined up and drove away from there. And Bob Harper told me that someday I was going to have to tell him what that was all about. And I have. I, uh, back to the borrowed control stick. I took that thing without hand receipt and put it in the trunk of my car and drove off base and drove on base and drove downtown Burbank and went to Rye Canyon and drove all around the country. Happily, I didn't lose that. <laughs> that would have been a bad one. Also, uh, <coughs> I was able to get each of us a flight in the F-16. I think both Bill Park and I uh, were among the first 100 people to fly in the F-16. It was in a two-seat F-16. It was in the back seat. It was with a, a, a uh, then GD pilot named Thigpen who took us riding and allowed us to fly the airplane and uh, didn't ask a question. And that was good preparation for us. The, the bottom line on that slide is, is just pointing up one of the things that for me, and I've worked on several of these kinds of airplanes, is watching the airplane the first time you get the the electrics and hydraulics powered up. And, and this was, uh, here's how it went. Have blue was my first one. And I think they're all like that. Hydraulics coming on, electrics coming on. Everything was quiet and smooth. I could feel a little vibration, electric, hydraulic kind of a vibration in the airplane as I touched it. I was not in the cockpit on this one. And uh, it was all nice and smooth until uh, the uh, super-duper flight control guy for Lockheed, Bob Lashke, walked up to one of the yellow vines and gave it a, a sharp rap with his hands. And the uh, surfaces then, from that perturbation, started moving slowly and then faster and through a larger amplitude. And uh, just not very many seconds, I thought the airplane was going to destroy itself. And we... Then Lashke called for the kill switch, boom, and the electrics and hydraulics were simultaneously turned off, and all was well. They learned what they needed to from the data that was stuck on the airplane, and were able to notch the control system so it wouldn't do that. And then we continued to get ready to fly the airplane. We had to move it. It had to be done covertly, and we did it. With the help of the security guys, they're not, they're not always bad. And once we got the airplane to where it was going, we had to finish putting it together, hooking up whatever needed to be 
hooked up. As I recall, this, this airplane was transported uh, pretty much together as, a, as opposed to being in some pieces. And then engine runs is a, an understatement. Of course, those of you who've been around the, the uh, initial power-up engine runs on, on new airplanes understand how you hook up one system and then another. And then when you have enough confidence in the airplane, you begin to taxi it. One of the taxi tests comes to mind. Bill was <coughs> making the taxi test. He did most of the engine runs and taxi tests because it was good training. That was our training uh, for uh, the airplane. And I <coughs> was, uh, was driving Chase in an open-air Jeep with uh, binoculars and a radio, a UHF radio. And after one taxi run, <coughs> he pulled to a stop and I realized that I put the binocs on him and realized, spotted a, a fire in one of the wheels. And uh, I, I realized just along with that fire that the fire trucks were not converging on him. They weren't right there and it felt to me like it took forever for him to get there. I radioed for Bill to, to shut her down and egress, you've got a wheel fire. And, and he got out, the fire trucks did get there in pretty fast, not fast enough for me, I'll tell you. And they extinguished the fire. We did tests to make sure that the structure had not been damaged on the aircraft. It had not, and we continued. The, the half-blue brakes were undersized. <laughs> so we, we pilots were issued some special equipment to assist and stop them. So we continued doing taxi runs, engine runs, until the next thing that many of us could think of to do was to go fly, to, to make sure it would go fly, to see if it would fly. There always are some people in a test program who want to keep on taxi in the airplane and do just one more taxi test. But we, uh, we got over that and we were ready to fly. Bill flew ship one in December of 77 and then he flew it through the next several flights. And when he was airborne on the first flight, I was tucked right in on his wing watching that thing. I had been working hard to be equally prepared to fly in case he couldn't. Of course he could. He stayed in commission well. And, and after he had flown it a few flights, then I got my turn. After that, we began to alternate one or the other of us in the chase airplane. And these are some of the disciplines we worked at to prove to ourselves that the airplane was indeed a safe airplane to fly, a substantial airplane. And we worked through these, for the most part, with uh, taking data, we did not spend the time to see how far it would go in a, a gallon of gas and exactly how many feet it would take to, to uh, roll down the runway before liftoff or to stop. But it was okay for the field where we were flying. My, my approach story is about one of my memorable flights in Airplane One. <coughs> I was coming back from a productive, uneventful test flight on short final, just a couple of hundred feet above the ground. And all of a sudden, the airplane pitched down. So I was looking at a lot of earth and no sky and up. So I was looking at, at the opposite end of that at, at pretty quick rates. And uh, 
I, I didn't like that and disengaged myself from, from the control stick. Uh, not, not literally like that, but I was still controlling, but I wasn't whamming the stick like a, I apparently had been to make the airplane do that. I had encountered rate limiting. And that's when a fly-by-wire control system can go, go crazy, get you out of phase with the, the response of the airplane is not like what you're expecting or asking for. And uh, on the go-around, I'm pleased I missed the ground. And I worked uh, very hard to uh, come around and smoothly uh, land the airplane after that. And by golly, I was able to do it. And you see the bottom line there. You've, you've probably got ahead of me and read that part. We had just returned from an uneventful, productive test flight. The, uh, the manager from the, the SPO here at Wright Pat had recently perhaps that very morning, said, Ken, I want you to be thinking about what else we have to do before we start stealth testing. What kind of basic airplane test do we need to continue to do? I said, okay, Jack, I'll think of that. And uh, on this flight, <coughs> I was in the chase airplane. It was a T-38. I was in the back seat, Colonel Larry McLean, boss where we were working, was flying the front seat. And we were just off his wing as Bill flew the approach, and then he started flying slower than the T-38 could fly. So Larry flew the, it began to accelerate, and I stuck my head back over in the corner of the canopy and, and watched have blue touchdown. A beautiful touchdown. Bill's sink rate was, was just perfect. But after that, the airplane leaped back into the sky really quick, and then the airplane slammed, nose down, onto the runway really quick. And I saw all that and couldn't really describe it as it was happening. But the airplane then was on the go. Bill was able to add power and make it go around under control. And uh, we got back on his wing. I told <coughs> McLean what had happened, and we came in for the rejoin. Bill had announced in a a measured, controlled voice that I can't forget that said, it is necessary that I go around. It wasn't like a Bill Park talk. <laughs> I, I knew he uh, was concerned about what had happened. I was concerned about what had happened. And Bill had instinctively raised the gear on the go, and that seemed to be fine enough until he put the gear handle down and the right main did not come out. So Bill tried various things, everything we, everything the control room, everything he could think of to get the right main gear out so we could make a, a safe landing and to include using, we had a one-shot alternate gear extension that did not work. Bill tried a, a bounce and go, and he smacked it hard to no avail. In fact, he scraped the right wingtip during that effort. Then, then thinking back, we had discussed what we would do if one main was up and we couldn't get it down. And the decision had been made well before we started flying to, to abandon the aircraft for fear of rolling the airplane up in a ball and killing the pilot. I uh, couldn't stand the quietness and, and transmitted on the radio, uh, what are you going to do now, Control? What are we going to do here? And, and they replied that he'll, he'll have to eject if we couldn't get that problem solved. We orbited the aircraft, we scratched our heads, 
uh, I reminded Bill that, you know, you ought to climb up towards 10,000 feet at least if you're going to eject. He started climbing. As he got close to that altitude, he announced that one of the engines was beginning to sputter from fuel starvation and said he was going to eject. And after ejection, the aircraft slowly pitched up. Unstable fly-by-wire airplane. When it got to uh, near vertical, then it began to, to flip and flop. It, it then started a, an awful-looking downward trajectory. It was vertical. It wasn't a spin. It was just flopping. Sometimes it'd flop over, sometimes not. And it didn't do it very long because it wasn't very far to the ground. And then we were looking <coughs> from the chase at Bill hanging in his parachute. We could see that he was unconscious and without his helmet. When the uh, airplane hit the ground, it didn't burn much because there was not much fuel left to burn. We were concerned that Bill might land in, in that small fireball, but he didn't. He, was, he landed close to it. The rescue chopper had been airborne for our return that day, and the chopper landed near Bill shortly after he had touched down. And during the descent, McLean and I had flown by and the chopper and I had flown by around him looking at Bill, inspecting him, trying to pass what information we could that was uh, pertinent to the guys. And we all were meticulous not to fly too close for fear of, of upsetting his parachute. We had enough troubles. The, the chopper landed and the medics got to Bill immediately, which saved his life. The unconscious Bill had been dragged a bit and could not breathe because he had a mouthful and faceful of desert dirt. The medic quickly got him breathing, assessed his head and leg injuries. His uh, helmet had taken most of the whack during the ejection process prior to being lost, so it did give him some protection. His head was not really bad. He had a very badly broken leg that had wrapped around the survival kit that did not deploy automatically during the ejection and uh, the leg just went where it went. And it, that thing was, was busted up pretty bad. Just as I had been surprised on short final with my, my uh, control situation, Bill had found the unexpected again during routine flying, just coming back to land after a good old productive mission. We, the Have Blue test team and all concerned, were worried about Bill. <coughs> We worried about our important flight demonstration of stealth technology, which had really not begun. We worried about possible security leaks related to the crash. Things worked out okay. Some cover story went, was given when required to the media. It took the heat off. After Bill was taken to a civilian hospital for treatment, uh, the media somehow found that a Lockheed test pilot had been injured and reported to a hospital. And they wanted to chase it down. It worked well enough. <coughs> Bill recovered. I recall be being in the Skunk Works building for some meetings after the crash, and uh, Bill was hobbling about on crutches there. Someone said, what happened to you, Bill? And, and he uh, replied, I got drunk and fell off a bar stool. He was a funny guy, a good guy. The program stood down from May 78 with introspective looks and some aircraft changes before the first flight of ship two. We did finish ship two. It paid off.
big return on a rather small investment. I, I recall that there was more concern and tenseness before the first flight of Airplane 2 than before the first flight, flight of Airplane 1. Certainly things were different. At that point, Lockheed had, had decided that Bill would not flight test any more ejection seat aircraft. He had used up four of them. <laughs> and that was all you could have, Bill. Uh, it had been directed that I would be the only pilot to fly ship two, since I had experience in our low-cost yet invaluable demonstrator. We completed our have blue aircraft two airplane, our reviews and required actions in short order. We did, uh, then did things much like we had done on airplane one to prepare for flight, but with more confidence because we had the experience of airplane one under us. Again, hours and hours in the flight simulator. Again, late at night. We did have two backup have blue pilots assigned at that point, uh, an Air Force guy named Russ Easter and one Lockheed uh, backup pilot, Ray Gowdy, were identified and qualified in the airplane short of flying it. They did all the things that test pilots do except the really hard stuff. They left that for me. I, uh, I flew some 60 have blue f flights over a year, the first flight in 78, just a couple of months after we'd lost airplane one. And th this somehow reminds me of one inaccuracy in the, the reading I did from uh, the book Skunk Works. It said it was August of 79 when uh, Ben was watching that happen and I crashed the last half blue airplane in July of 79, so uh, that's not exactly right. And I, I think he uh, spoke of some 60-some 60, 60 flights on ship number two. And by my count, which was unofficial, I did not log flying time in the Air Force system. Uh, I just would fly the airplane and walk away from it. But I did keep a scrap of paper with uh, the date and some times and maybe some uh, indecipherable stuff. It was very secure, I assure you, if, if anyone is interested in, in that stuff. And so I had some, I, some insight as to how many flights we had. And by my count, it was 50-something. But we flew it as much as we could against everything we could. Interspersed with downtime for analysis, review, and improvements. And I don't have an idea what time it is. What time is it? So I can keep talking. Okay. Shut me off, General, if I, uh, if I get run over. Um, <coughs> we'd fly, analyze, review, perhaps make some changes. We racked our brains to find ways to both measure the radar returns of the airplanes of the airplane and to evaluate it against the best radar systems we could find. And we did both thoroughly, flying against every operational system that we could think of and get, and we got most everything we asked for. We, we did uh, prove to ourselves that Airplane 2 could indeed fly well enough in three short flights. I think the flying time to on the first flight was two-tenths of an hour and then about half an hour on the next ones and uh, we, we completed our uh, functional acceptance flights and went right to work to prep the airplane for a stealthy look and begin the test. That's a 
nice looking shot of the airplane. We did not take many pictures. We did not take enough pictures. But we took some, and I've tried to find, uh, I, I have found all I can find <laughs> and, and collected them so I, I'm able to show you a few shots. And this shows uh, some of the faceted, flat, streamlined look of the airplane. On the morning of 7 July, 1979, one of my uh, good friends and I and other guys uh, used to get in a dice game and, and uh, this guy was a big, big gambler, uh, much more so than I. And af after uh, I was recovered from the ejection, uh, he reminded me that was my lucky day, 7-11. I said, oh, yeah, you're right, Bob. So I went to work that morning not realizing that I would have a short flight. Takeoff and after takeoff checks were normal. The chase came by, looked me over, pronounced me fit and good with no leaks. I proceeded to one end of our work area while the radar instrument at F-15 was going to look at us to see if he could see us. Flew to the other end, and my chase was orbiting well out of the way away from me. As I was outbound, I noticed one of the hydraulic systems beginning to oscillate in a downward direction, and I started to turn for recovery. I had aborted that aircraft a couple of days before for a hydraulic system that seemed to be going down, and they had worked on it between flights. In my turn back to the base, the combined fire overheat warning light came on for the right engine. I retorted the right throttle, popped out the UHF antenna, which had been retracted so it would not uh, cause a, a radar blip, and announced that I was RTB with my problems. I put the platypus to the half position because I felt like it would give better single engine performance. The platypus was a body flap at the rear end of the airplane used to give a nose down pitching moment from a control surface if alpha got too big. It was defined in the control laws and, and uh, that's, and we called it the platy. We did not call it a body flap. So I put the platy, the platy half out. I had control over that. The right hydraulic system went to zero. I had shut the engine, the right engine down after a few seconds at idle to see if uh, that, that nasty red light would go out, it did not. And I had shut the right engine down after a few seconds at idle. <coughs> then the remaining hydraulic system began to oscillate downward, and I thought, this is not good. We were above, I was above 20,000 feet. I always did speak and still do speak in the terms of we, because the team was with me. I could feel it. So we were up kind of high and not going real fast, although the airplane, the Have Blue airplane, did, uh, did fly out to some pretty good cue, uh, above 400 knots, uh, approaching 450, if not attaining it. Well, <coughs> back to the, the pilot sitting there looking at things coming apart. I announced the pending loss of the remaining hydraulic system, and then the airplane departed. Awesome. The airplane pitched. Uh, nose down to the vertical, it pitched at about 120 degrees per second, which is a heck of a pitch rate. 
and then it, it got to vertical. The uh, relative wind is here, and the unstable airplane all of a sudden was stable, so it started back the other way until it got in a stable regime, and then it went to the other vertical. It pitched at negative 6 Gs plus 7 Gs and did this for a few cycles. And uh, I was disoriented. And uh, the G-forces were tossing me about in the cockpit. My arms would go up to <coughs> the top of the canopy. The canopy, by the way, the, the airplane was small. I mentioned that. The, the, uh, the canopy sides were built like this. And I had to, <coughs> when I sat down in the seat, I had to scoot a little bit slump somewhat so the canopy would close without banging my head. So it was, it was right there. Tiny thing. Would not fit all the people in the world who would like to fly it. So my arms would get thrown up against that, thrown down in my lap. Uh, I know my head went in the direction of between my legs. There was no control stick. I was able to find the ejection seat control, which was a ring. It was a stencil seat, and the ring was between the legs. I found that baby and pulled it, and hallelujah. The, uh, I heard the canopy go. I felt the seat being propelled up the rails. The uh, chute began to deploy as the seat was going up the rails in the zero-zero mode, although we were at some kind of knots and some kind of altitude. It had uh, bad information. One of the engineers explained to me that the, the pitot tube is like this to the relative wind, and it thinks you're going zero. It sees no dynamic pressure. So it thought the seat was at zero, was his story on that. And uh, I heard the chute, I could hear it snap crisply open. I looked up at it, fearing I would see some torn panels, but it was all intact. And I liked that. I, uh, I noted the time after I got my bearings back hanging in the chute above 20,000 feet. <coughs> and uh, I had been airborne 10 minutes. I thought, yeah, that's pretty, <laughs> pretty interesting bit of trivia, so I'll share it with you. And uh, as I continued hanging in the chute, I got hypoxic from being at that altitude. Not, I did not get unconscious, but I could tell I was getting hypoxic from the training I had received in the, the uh, altitude chamber training that Air Force pilots were then and I'm sure now required to, to go through. I uh, stared at the yellow and black ring on the survival kit and was confused enough from being hypoxic and having my head banged around and all my senses tweaked that I decided I wasn't going to pull that thing, so I didn't. I just did not deploy the, the survival kit as all for, like builds. My, my seat, was, seat kit was not deployed, but I was conscious, going to be conscious for the landing, I hoped. I watched the Havblu airplane tumble below me in that same way that Bill's airplane had done, flip, flop, straight down, and, and so I'd hit the <coughs> desert with a big ball of fire. It burned a lot because the the machine was pretty much full of fuel. I saw the chase aircraft and waved at him as vigorously as I could because I didn't want him to hit me. <laughs> and I later found that the chase, the two guys in the T-38 chase 
had not seen me. <laughs> they were there looking. They'd gotten vectors to the, my last known position, and they didn't uh, hit anything ever. The, uh, the chute for the stencil seat had a smaller diam diameter canopy than the normal uh, chutes in the Aces II seats, for example, which became a standard. And there was no four-line cut afforded to the pilot. And as I was coming down, I could hear the wind at altitude, the perfect quiet, and I could hear the wind sighing around me. The chute then began to oscillate for some reason. And uh, when the oscillations got big enough that I was concerned I was, would maybe do that to the chute and collapse it, or I, I uh, began to, to damp the oscillations the way, again, the Air Force training had been pointed at me and uh, was able to to damp the oscillations and continue a happy descent. I made a good parachute landing fall, a PLF, a good touchdown, rolled over. I was proud of it. And after I got uh, oriented from that, got my bearings back, my mind about me, I checked the time. I had been 10 minutes in the descent. <laughs> Little symmetry there, yeah. I, uh, I dumped the chute and immediately stood up and decided that that ache I had felt in my back as, as I descended was real and it hurt. And so I uh, got back on the ground and arranged a pillow with my survival kit and just, just decided to lie there and, and talk to the chopper guys, which I did. I called them up on guard and then to a, a special different frequency and they came right in and got me asked me if I'd like to walk to the chopper, and I, I said, I'd, I'd appreciate <laughs> some help. And so the guys came and got me on a litter and put me on a chopper and, and took me to a military hospital where I received good care for a couple of days. <coughs> Later, evaluation revealed that I had uh, compression fractures and three vertebrae in my lower back. <coughs> my eyelashes had been burned off from the rocket plume going out of the, the cockpit. And uh, I'm sure my head was down in that direction as far as the shoulder harness would allow me to go. There was no need to issue a cover story for this crash because it was not reported by the media. They didn't find it out, so we had no questions. The, the cause of my crash was the loosening of a clamp on an engine exhaust duct that directed really hot exhaust gases onto some commonly located hydraulic system one and two lines and fittings leading to their failures. A friend and co-worker called Nina and told her that I was okay, that I had ejected, and I'd call her. I did. And, and at, at this point I want to just uh, the general Showed you Nina. Nina would just stand just so they could, I don't think you stood a moment ago, and, and take a little bow. For, for yourself and all the other wives who uh, put up with guys like me and other members of the team for all those days. And uh, then a couple of days later, as I happily gimped off a Lockheed plane at Palmdale, <coughs> I was really pleased to be met by my wife and my daughter. And uh, daughter 
was still ticked off at me about an answer I gave her, kind of in line with Bill Park's answer. Uh, what happened to you, Daddy? Why are you walking funny? And I, I told her I'd fallen off the ladder while climbing into the cockpit of an F-4. She believed me. I, I'm not sure that's good. <laughs> and she hasn't forgotten that. We had indeed successfully demonstrated by that point that stealth technology was real and could fly with it, a man in the airplane. I had learned what a stealth aircraft looked like. Sleek, pointy, flat-sided, highly swept. And that was half blue, as I recall it. Bill Park and I were together at the Test Pilot Society Symposium uh, that year that was recognized by <coughs> Secretary of Defense Carlucci. And, and Bill started signing some pictures, so I jumped right in. and. I got the last, uh, the last lick on, on this signature. <laughs> and one more, more comment about the Skunk Work books. They, they did not ask me to proofread that. Uh, Bill Park had made inputs, and I never did get to ask Bill. He died of a heart attack before I got to him. Uh, if he was intentionally blowing smoke, or if he really thought what he had, had written in the book, and that was that, that Ken Dyson, uh, being an astute engineering test pilot, could see the hydraulic systems going away, so he jumped out while the airplane was still flying nice. I'll tell you, that was a ride. <laughs> now we're going to shift gears a little. <coughs> Five pilots flew tacit blue. Dick Thomas from Northrop and the other four, us, four of us from the Air Force. Each one of us has our own perspective and would tell a somewhat different story, but we all agreed. We loved it. It looks like a whale. They forgot to take it out of the box. It'll probably fly like a whale. We were right. And yet, it was one of the most successful technology demonstrator programs. Well, I had just taken a couple of weeks off with my sore back from flying to rest after completing the Have Blue Stealth Technology Demonstrator program. I, I knew what stealth aircraft looked like. We've, I've said it before. And that we could make them fly. My uh, <coughs> boss at that time, uh, Colonel Larry McLean, asked if I would work on another interesting program. And I jumped right on it, no hesitation at all. Well, the first time I was introduced to the looks of Have Blue, you can imagine the confusion in the mind of this engineering test pilot. I thought, here we go again. This is not going to be easy. I was correct. Hard work followed. <coughs> the Air Force and DARPA funded and supported the Tacit Blue program for Northrop to design build and fly this different <coughs> stealth aircraft. We were to demonstrate a low RCS stealthy aircraft with curved surfaces. It was nice to see a real airfoil. And chines, an aircraft that housed a large volume to put stuff in, to carry and to develop a specific payload, a stealthy air-to-ground radar. <coughs> and my boss, said to me that my uh, job was to take my recent experiences to the Tacit Blue program, which was similar in many ways. 
a lot of the same people were working together. We'd have a small test team of Northrop guys and some Air Force Flight Test Center guys and guys from the SPO back here and, and engineers other than program management who'd come out and work on real problems. We did pull off the highly classified aspect of the, this program as well. You think about it, it's, it's mind-boggling almost that we could uh, do that and, and not have some leak somewhere from someone catch us. And I recall uh, one of the Av Week writers asking me after this one had, made, had been made public as well, how'd you guys do that? I said, a, a little luck and a lot of hard work. It was. But this aircraft was also <coughs> unstable in pitch and yaw. Uh, degree of instability was bigger, I think, than, than the have blue. But uh, when they get that unstable, I'm not too sure it makes that much difference. <laughs> you have to have the control power to to make it work and the control system to apply that power in the correct way. The, the, one of the middle uh, dashes there, low cost and adequate resources, seemed to be self-contradictory, but, but it was both of those things. It, it was a low cost program. We moved rather quickly and we did not have lots and lots of people and did not have too much management. So it all worked well, and if we needed anything, <coughs> we could get it. The, uh, the small test team with the Northrop guys was like the small test team from the, the Have Blue guys, the Lockheed guys. Uh, made, we all made lasting friendships and, <coughs> excuse, and developed a tremendous amount of respect or the various talents that the various folks brought to it. And, and those friendships uh, continue today. But the airplane was not exactly a half blue. It was made by a different contractor. It had curved surfaces. It had a digital flight control system instead of it used F-18 flight control computers instead of uh, the analog type that we had for the uh, from the F-16 to put it to have blue. A significant <coughs> thing was accomplished when we used uh, differential pressures to measure angle of attack and side slip. Static ports, different pressures, left, right side of the airplane, up, up, down side of the airplane. And uh, we were able to calibrate that thing pretty well in the wind tunnel and then further calibrated in flight when we had uh, test booms on the airplane. We flew with two test booms, I sometimes call these this, air, this airplane, the tacit blue, the half blue, uh, low cost, unstable, fly-by-wire, no mechanical backup, not very redundant control system, uh, which, which was not really true. But for example, on, on the tacit blue, we used two test booms to measure total and static pressure in alpha and beta. And we take those two signals into the airplane and then make them look like four signals we just run two wires to each one, and voila, we had a quad redundant uh, thingy. So Northrop built this airplane for one guy to fly, although it's 
kind of large cockpit with two Garrett, in, Garrett engines, which treated us right, but again, there just was not enough thrust in that airplane. Uh, there was enough thrust to do what we were doing. And the engines were not uh, fully developed when we started. In the airplane, we had to run hours on the uh, engines to proof test the fans on these turbofan, non-afterburning uh, machines, engines. I, uh, I liked seeing the nice curved aerodynamic looks that some of the airplane had. And, and by the way, I today am wearing a Taipan that's a whale. <laughs> and uh, for years, I and several other guys wore the whale on our ties with a lot of people not knowing what they were. But some people did. The airplane was uh, way big in, in physical size uh, compared to Have Blue. So those of you who have seen Tacit Blue, you've not seen Have Blue. This is a plan form of the Have Blue airplane. The wingspan on the Have Blue was uh, 22 feet. The tail span on Tacit Blue was 24 feet. So uh, when you look at Tacit blue sometime, think about the size of Have Blue. It was a small guy. Northrop had decided that a digital flight control system was required to handle the whale, and it did perform well. It took a lot of development. The large flat side on the Have Blue airplane, on the Tacit Blue airplane, was uh, required to house a large flat antenna and boxes for a, 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 a LPIR, a low, low probability of intercept radar. You see the engine inlets there. <coughs> and that was done so that the front aspect of the airplane would not have the big radar return that an engine inlet typically gives. Because uh, from the front, you couldn't see the, the engine faces. As we look at, at the beauty of this aircraft, the, the looks of the airplane grew on us as we worked on it. We began to think it was a pretty thing. One of our visitors who came by from the Air Force staff said to me, a pilot would have to swallow his pride to fly an airplane that looked like that. <laughs> I, I, it, it hurt my feelings. It hurt the team feelings, those of us who were standing there. We, and we took pride in getting Tacit Blue to fly and to fly well. The rest of the team and I spent many hours at Northrop and El Segundo in a special security-minded and enforced area. I went to meetings there often. And I sat either one-on-one -on -one or with Dick Thomas and had discussions with engineers about choices to be made and just learning about the system that this guy had done. And alternatives that we could consider. And tons of time were also spent in the flight control simulator, uh, in the flight simulator where we developed the flight control system. And again, I was a night person. We did that at night. Lots of black time. And then we got ready to, uh, again, ship the aircraft covertly. An Air Force aircraft 
we use to, to move the tacit blue. In some pieces, as required, so it would fit in the, the airplane, in the transport airplane. And um, of course, we moved that in the middle of the night. I rode in the cockpit for this night delivery to a special place. We were making a, a night approach toward that place, and I uh, sensed that we had lost calm and guidance to the field and suggested that, uh, that we climb up to a safe altitude. And, and uh, I, I'm pretty sure the transport crew would have done that, but I couldn't uh, slow down my gain. I had to, to let them know, and I was in the crew cab for some reason after all. And it turned out well. We, we climbed up, reestablished contact, uh, made a successful, uneventful delivery. The uh, control system, I've hammered on it. I should say security again, just for you. We did that a lot. And Dick Thomas and I spent many hours, and then uh, Russ Easter joined up well early in the program so that he could take over after uh, I had completed my part of the work, which was to go through the initial airworthiness. We all crashed and burned in the simulators many times particularly on landings and with increased levels of turbulence and crosswinds while attacking the alpha limiter and the beta limiter. And these uh, frequent crashes began to give me a bad feeling about the airplane. It wasn't giving me confidence that we were going to have su success, but uh, I was counseled by some of our good engineers over a debriefing beer that it was going to be okay, and, and it was. We uh, flew the TIFFS, another CalSpan aircraft, which is a, a large cargo kind of airplane with a cockpit stuck out under the nose and uh, a variable stability airplane so we could fly the TIFFS to simulate the characteristics of the whale. During TIFFS flying, we found some problems during landing, both in pitch and roll, after implementing some changes using both the ground simulators and the TIFFS results, blending them together. We uh, came away with confidence that we could land in calm and even in some crosswind or turbulent conditions. We used the T-38 for our proficiency and safety crafts. I... Uh, <coughs> Again, arranged flights for Dick Thomas and myself in aircraft that he and I had not flown ever, or recently at least, to sharpen, sharpen our skills. The tacit Blue had a center stick and a normal kind of uh, center stick feel for a pig of an aircraft. I shouldn't say that. Well, I say it with love. Again, I watched the first power-up of the electric and hydraulic on this airplane, and it had the same sort of exciting thing to watch and recover from, and we put the, the airplane on, on them together. But we could not start the second engine. The left-hand engine would start okay. That's the one you crank first. And then the right engine would, would hang up partway through the start and bang the... Uh, Temperature, the engine temperature would spike, and we'd have to abort the start or destroy the engine. Uh, the thing that was happening was reverse flow through the inlet, which you no longer see, the shared inlet, 
for both engines. One engine is, is running and pulling air through the inlet, and the other engine is trying to start and uh, is pulling air through the back of it to go give some more air to the engine that's running, so it wasn't working. So we, um, we developed a procedure. We, we didn't have to rack our brains hard, but we uh, developed a procedure that would allow us to start them both. We called it the almost simultaneous start procedure. And, and you know how our Air Force guys are good about getting acronyms. We'd initiate the second start just a few seconds after the, the first one had lit off, and this resulted in both engines uh, pulling air in the right direction, and uh, that was used through the program. The hydraulics were a huge challenge for us. It's not good to have your airplane lose its hydraulics close to the ground on the first flight. And we did not do that. We uh, broke the hydraulic system many times during engine runs. The, the hydraulics failed during our fourth run, and then again during the sixth run after we put it together, causing an immediate shutdown. Shut her down. You got a leak. Leonard would say, or Wayne, and resulting in uh, a massive spill with hydraulic fluid flooding the confines of the engine and, and accessories bay, creating a real hazard. So we deactivated the, the hydraulic system and continued with other engine running tests. We instrumented the hydraulic system and continued to rack our brains about how we could fix that, and we recommenced hydraulic system test on the 19th engine run. We, we gathered and, and analyzed data and implemented some fixes, and uh, after that, this takes a little work, guys. We uh, experienced good, dependable hydraulic system operation. The hydraulic system was such a big trouble that <coughs> it, des it deserved its own independent review team to see, uh, to assess the problem with some outside talented folk and to uh, recommend fixes and to help us work toward fixes, and we got there. We completed low-speed taxi tests in late, <coughs> in late January and final taxi tests two weeks later on 2 February. The first flight was made on 5 February with Dick Thomas in the whale, and I was tacked in on his wing as chase one to do whatever I could do as a chase plane. All was fine. Nice takeoff, liftoff, and the control room then lost all TM. They had nothing to look at. An assembled group of very talented engineers and flight test experienced people, but they had no idea <laughs> what to look at. The, uh, one thing we had not tested <coughs> was simulating what happened when we, when the aircraft sensed weight off gear. The TM system then would click to a higher power so the guys in the control room could get really good reception. The only thing was it, it, uh, it blew a fuse and killed the entire system. The uh, Tacit Blue team worked hard and got her flying again with TM. 
so we could accomplish our flight test. On that first flight, uh, Dick flew for a short while, completing the parts of the test card that we had identified for such a contingency, and uh, landed the airplane uneventfully. Well, I was tucked in tight for the first flight, and I was equally prepared to fly the machine if, if Dick wasn't up for it, but, but he was, and he did a good job. After, after my initial flight, <coughs> we alternated with, with Dick or myself in the chase airplane, the other guy flying the tacit blue. We completed all those things. We moved rather quickly. This airplane would fly a couple of hours, and uh, so we could get a lot done. And uh, Russ Easter was taken over after I left the tacit blue effort. And his initial flight in tacit blue was the 14th flight, which completed the initial airworthiness testing. And I was. I was way glad that we did not include flight testing of the ejection seat. <coughs> we completed the signature and radar test uh, later after I left uh, the program. And although we didn't do flight testing of the ejection seat, we were pretty confident it would work because we had completed one zero zero through the roof seat test by this willing volunteer. <laughs> no, that's not me. Northrop built a box with an ACES two seat and 100% fidelity frangible tacit blue top surface for the cockpit area. The normal mode was to explosively fragment that top of the aircraft just before the seat was propelled up through the hole that it would leave. And we strapped some suitable dummy into the seat and fired the seat through the top surface to, to be testing a worst case condition. And you see he got a few scratches, but he came out okay. And I was out there watching, learning, as an interested and involved participant, just as I did everything I could squeeze my arms around on both these programs. So we did it, myself and, and all the other wonderful Tacit Blue team members. And uh, there were some ladies directly involved in the flight test of this uh, machine. They worked hard as members of the team, and we all worked hard to a successful conclusion <coughs> of this technology demonstration program. I retired from the Air Force the end of that May in 82 and became a bomber pilot, as the general mentioned, flying the B-1B uh, through uh, many hours and tests, and uh, that was a lot of good hard work, too. And later, <coughs> worked on the X-31, which again was a low-cost, unstable, fly-by-wire, no mechanical backup, you know. A fine bunch of flying machines. There's old blue again, and... End of show. <laughs>